You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop, a full-service barbershop offering high-quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. 10th Ward Barbershop proudly serves the historic Lawrenceville, 10th Ward, and surrounding Pittsburgh areas. Adam frequents 10th Ward Barbershop when he swings through the area and loves Ryan Kane's laser-sharp precision on both his hair and beard needs. But you don't have to take his word for it. WWE superstars Finn Balor and Corey Graves frequent 10th Ward Barbershop for their hair and beard needs. The team at 10th Ward accepts walk-ins, but schedules fill up quickly, so the best way to see them is to make an appointment at 10thwardbarbershop.com. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. Make sure to grab some Silk Panther hair products in shop or online while you're there. Schedule your appointment today to see Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop today. And we thank them for sponsoring the program. Hey, it's Adam. As a producer's note, Robert and I recorded this episode on Monday, October 23rd, beginning at 11 a.m. In the ever-changing world of politics, both domestic and international, some things may have changed since we last spoke. To stay up to date on all things happening in the political world currently, follow Bob at Costa Reports on Instagram, Twitter, and Threads. Okay, enjoy the show. Welcome to a special episode of Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard, and my guest today is the chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News. He's also the co-author of the number one New York Times best-selling book, Peril, with Bob Woodward. And he's here to help break down everything that's happening in the political world today. My guest is Robert Costa. How are you, sir? Great to be back with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I appreciate you stopping by the show today. And before we get started on everything, I wanted to just uh, congratulate you again on Peril, having the uh, number one New York uh, Times bestselling uh, book. Tell me about some of the responses that you received from the book since the last time we spoke. The book, it's named after a phrase from uh, President Biden's inaugural address in 2021 when he used the phrase, we are now in a winter of peril. And he said that in January of 2021, just days after the Capitol attack. And we took that that word from the phrase peril, because to us, based on our reporting, Woodward and I concluded that peril does remain. Peril remains are the final two words of our book. I don't think we're giving anything away by giving you the, the last two words of the book. But peril remains. Peril remains in September 2021 when the book came out in hardback. And it remains really here in October of 2023, more than two years later, uh, you, you have a country that has no Speaker of the House, at least as, at the time of our conversation. Uh, there are wars ongoing in Ukraine. There is a war with Israel and Palestine fighting after the Hamas attack. Uh, there's tensions with China. Uh, democracy seems to be fragile in so many parts of the world and in the country. And there's a sense of uncertainty everywhere about where is the world going? Where is the American uh, government going? Where, where, where are the pillars that are holding it up, if anything? Where is the leadership in each of the parties? You have older leaders of the Democratic Party 
You have uh, scattered leaders, to say the least, in the Republican Party. Uh, Former President Trump facing so many indictments, looming trials. To me, even having never lived through 1968, having read about tumult over at least the last half century or last century, we really seem to be in a moment akin to that kind of turbulence in the American scene. Of course, 1968 had the the violence of the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, but uh, and we don't want to see that return in any way, of course, the violence. But we have violence in our time as well with the the lingering effects of the Capitol attack. So all that's to say is we wrote a book that was about a moment in time, but that moment in time has not really ended, at least in terms of the, the dynamics that shaped peril, the dynamics that shaped peril continue to shape us today. I agree. I think there's a lot of uh, everything that that is that is so prescient in the book is still playing out today. I mean, we're looking at we're talking to start this episode. We're talking about four indictments and the trials upcoming for former President Trump, you know, he's facing the indictments regarding the January 6th insurrection. He's facing currently the uh, the court case with the um, trying to interfere with the election in Georgia. We have the classified documents case and also the hush money case uh, involving Stormy Daniels. There's just so much that is going on just inside of that sphere alone. Which one of those potentially, in your reporting and, and your analysis, has the potential to be the most damaging to Trump in his campaign or potentially in his potentially in his next presidency? So I've had the opportunity, Adam, to sit behind Trump, uh, the former president, in the courtroom in New York in recent weeks. And I'm actually right after uh, our conversation today, later tonight, I'm going to head. I'm in Boston right now to speak at the Kennedy Library and with David Gergen, the the former presidential advisor. But I'm going to head straight from the Kennedy Library tonight to New York City because Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and advisor, is scheduled to testify this week in the ongoing civil trial where Trump's finances are under scrutiny for allegedly committing fraud over decades. What's intriguing is that when I report on Trump's inner circle, Trump and his world, I'm told by people who know them well, they're more concerned about this civil trial than the federal criminal trials. You have the special counsel in Washington investigating uh, Trump's handling of classified documents, plus Trump's conduct in and around January 6th. But it's the civil trial in New York where Trump's company is in a harsh spotlight that really worries him. Why does that worry him? Because his finances are at risk. He could face a $250 million fine, which would be significant for a businessman who doesn't have a lot of liquid cash, who has a lot of his brand wrapped up in marketing and evaluations of properties versus cash. So that would be a hit. And if this goes through in New York in the civil trial, he might not go to he won't go to jail, but his company could be disbanded. And so for Trump, this is an existential crisis, at least in terms of his finances. And he shrugs off a lot of the criminal stuff, thinking he can have appeal after appeal after appeal. But for his businesses to be under threat, that's very real to him. And I think in terms of going to jail, if Trump ever does go to jail, January 6th, seems to be, uh, you never want to have the Justice Department investigating you with a grand jury. That's kind of a, the worst case scenario if you're a major figure. But what's interesting is that the Georgia case in Fulton County, Georgia, is moving quickly and they're breaking down witnesses. Already Sidney Powell and Ken Chesborough have gotten plea agreements. And so Trump could face imprisonment in Georgia if he's seen as being part of this conspiracy to overturn Georgia's election results. So what's interesting to me as a reporter is that the federal cases are are much are very, very serious in terms of gravity and scope. But ultimately, it could be Georgia 
that causes him the most problems in terms of prison time. And if that ever happens, this is all ongoing, ongoing criminal uh, investigations and trials. And it's the New York civil trial that presents the most financial peril to use a word. Now, I know you just touched on uh, yeah, Ken Chesborough and Sidney Powell uh, taking the guilty verdicts uh, or the guilty pleas, rather, for this upcoming case. Uh, and they're required, uh, according to the briefs, they're required to testify truthfully against their co-defendants. Um, which one of these folks do you think has the potential to be more damaging to Donald Trump's case uh, in this instance when it comes to the Georgia election interference? Well, they, they, they're two central characters. They are two central. They're not the central characters, but... Sidney Powell was much more involved directly with Trump. There's a famous meeting, and we report about it in the book, and others have done great reporting on it as well, such as Jonathan Swan, uh, who's now at the New York Times. But on December 18th, 2020, there was an infamous meeting in the Oval Office where Sidney Powell was present, among other Trump lawyers. And Sidney Powell was pleading with Trump, along with a few other of her allies who were in the room, pleading with Trump to seize voting machines and to have the federal government take control of voting machines. And there was talk in the room in the Oval Office about having Sidney Powell come into the government to not only be an outside lawyer, but to become a so-called special counsel, either at the White House or at the Justice Department. And this frustrated and alarmed many around Trump, who thought Sidney Powell's ideas were off the wall, uh, to even kind of the words that were used to me in my reporting with Woodward, insane and bat something crazy. And, uh, but she was very close to Trump. Uh, and she was in the room. She was up in the residence of the White House, we reported numerous times. So she can provide prosecutors in Georgia and elsewhere with an up-close vantage point of what Trump was saying behind the scenes, and that will help them decide whether, they, that, whether Trump had criminal intent and how he was thinking through the election. Ken Chesborough, though, is much more uh, interesting to me in terms of the constitutional brinkmanship and games that were being played and the theories that were being floated. He, along with conservative lawyer John Eastman, were floating this idea that alternate electors, so-called fake electors, could emerge in states and present Trump with a victory by claiming that Trump had won those states. And Chesborough provided legal cover, in a sense, by writing all of these memos where he detailed how alternate electors could be used. And ultimately, those efforts to write those memos are now part of the criminal investigation. Uh, but he, And he has accepted a, a plea deal rather than go to trial. Suppose, for example, he does go to jail in the Georgia trial, uh, in the Georgia election interference. Do you think that in any way... Uh, hurts or helps this case when it comes to the classified documents or any of the other civil trials? What do you think the potential ramifications are for that? Additionally, um, is there any precedent uh, or any uh, information on the law books or anything that is inside of a presidential run that says that he can't run for president if he's been convicted of a crime, whether at the state level or at the federal level? Well, let's take the last part of that question first. It's always... uh Notable to me that so many people I meet on the campaign trail, they think that people who are in prison can't run for president. That's not true. Our Constitution does not bar people who are in prison from running for federal office. So Trump could be in prison if it ever gets to that and be able to win the presidency and and even serve as president, oddly enough, Um, which what Trump. Which could what uh, a thing that could bar Trump from office, though this is at this point far away from being anything close to reality, is the Fourteenth Amendment 
of the Constitution, which states that officers of the United States who are in part of an insurrection cannot uh, you know, run for office anymore. And this is being tested in some courts, including in North Carolina, whether someone who had any kind of connection to January 6th can actually still run for federal office. But for now, Trump is really free and clear to run for the presidency, even if he ends up going to prison. Uh, these cases are interrelated, but not interrelated. Uh, the Justice Department is not coordinating with Georgia and not coordinating with New York. And you have two separate things in New York. People forget there's still the hush money payments trial where Trump paid Stormy Daniels money. And then that's separate from the New York civil trial about the Trump Organization committing fraud. The, the way these things all combine and the, what, what matters to people who follow this just kind of day to day, but not in minute to minute, is that Trump's schedule could be very complicated with all of these trials happening at once in early 2024. And it could take him from the campaign trail from time to time, effectively making the courtroom the campaign trail. And it could also make it hard for a lot of these trials to finish on time. And you could see this stretching even past the 2024 election in some cases. Now, I know you just mentioned, too, uh, I think it's important to talk about this a little bit uh, as well. You had mentioned um, the, the courtroom becoming the campaign trail. Trump was recently just fined $5,000 for violating a gag order. Tell me exactly what do you think? Do you think there's a potential of him um, to put himself in more legal uh, peril, if you will, to use it, lack of a better word? Is there a potential for him to, uh, to uh, be locked up or have a situation where one of the judges says, you know what, that's enough. I can't take this anymore. I don't want to hear it. You know, I'm, I'm revoking your bail. The challenge for doing that for a lot of these judges is that Trump's a federal candidate. He's a candidate for federal office. And Trump on free speech grounds is going to always push the limit about what he can say uh, and say, you can't have my speech limited. You're allowed to be critical of justices and lawyers in any kind of case, usually. You just can't get personal and, and try to incite violence or anything like that. So Trump's definitely testing the bounds of what he can do, and that's led to this flurry of uh, gag orders and concerns from prosecutors that he's disrupting the cases. Well, that's his intent. Based on my conversations with his associates, he wants to disrupt. He wants to push the buttons of these prosecutors. And to him, getting a gag order is almost politically beneficial because he's seen as someone who they have to try to put a hand over the mouth, uh, figuratively speaking, to try to shut him up. And that he wants to be seen as someone who's aggrieved, who is facing an onslaught from prosecutors. And so... He's not going to back down. The prosecutors want him to be quiet, but Trump's own advisors tell me behind the scenes that he'll never be quiet because if he's quiet, his supporters will go, well, why is he being muted now? Uh, we, we like him when he's speaking out. So I guess that pivots us into our next conversation uh, piece here. We want to talk about the GOP primaries, uh, which are starting to take full swing now as we're getting into October. Uh, there's a handful of standout candidates that come to mind uh, when we discuss this. We talk about Ron DeSantis. Uh, we're talking about Mike Pence. We're talking about Vivek Ramaswamy and then also uh, Donald Trump. Uh, tell me where we stand right now when it comes to the GOP primaries uh, as we get into really into the election season. There's so much going on in the Republican presidential race, but it gets almost no attention because Trump's legal challenges have effectively suffocated the Republican presidential field because Trump's in the news all the time with all these trials, all these gag orders. It's very hard for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or others to say, you know, we're front page news. 
And Trump's decision to not participate in the debates makes it even harder. Someone like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who I profiled for CBS Sunday Morning, he's been eager to get some traction, some attention. He was hoping to tangle with Trump at the debates, but Trump won't show up. So when Trump won't show up to give you part of the stage, and then he's dominating the news with all of his legal trouble, you have the Republican presidential race almost seems to operate at a AAA level in terms of activity and excitement. And that frustrates so many of these campaigns, which I'm engaged with daily, because they feel like they're just not getting the kind of attention from voters, the media, that they feel they deserve, and they don't really know how to break through, especially with the war now, two wars ongoing globally. How do you break through all of that and really close? Their view is that at the end of the day, the non-Trump vote in the Republican race will eventually coalesce and consolidate around one contender, maybe two. And so that could be Nikki Haley, it could be Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, someone who's not really running as a non-Trump, but is kind of a Trump alternative, who's very Trumpian in his politics. The, the tension really at this point in October 2023 between DeSantis and, and Haley about who's going to be kind of the favorite of the Republican business establishment, the favorite of traditional Republicans. They're both competing to be that standard bearer. Christie's in the mix as well, so is Pence. Uh, and Christie is someone who's making a big bet on New Hampshire. He believes by having a lot of town halls and voter contact in New Hampshire, the first in the nation primary, he can get a bounce into the Super Tuesday states and be seen as someone who's viable because he knows that someone else like DeSantis or or Haley or Ramaswamy may come out of Iowa, the caucuses, which occur before New Hampshire, with a little bit of buzz. So you're looking at Iowa as a place where a lot of evangelical favorites are making a play. New Hampshire is a place where kind of traditional Republicans are making a play. And then South Carolina, you have two candidates from South Carolina in the race with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. And so everyone's trying to get a bite of the apple from those early contests so they can try to survive late into the race and really compete against Trump. Is there any kind of standing or bearing or information right now that would project anyone to be that standard bearer uh, going forward into maybe Iowa or New Hampshire uh, at this point right now? Or do you think it really is just kind of an up in the air, uh, whoever is going to be able to get through to that non-Trump voter base and additionally, is there any way for someone like a Chris Christie or someone like a Ron DeSantis to break through that almost barrier uh, when it comes to someone who is uh, just hard set on voting for Trump? Is there a way for them to break through uh, to the other side? It's hard to see how they break through. I mean, I'm not a strategist, just a reporter, but the challenge they have is they all want to be seen as better than Trump, but they don't want to alienate Trump or his voters by breaking through. So they're looking for kind of a roundabout way to become the, the leading candidate or at least the second best candidate. But if you're not going to take on Trump directly in a severe way, uh, then how do you do it? Because Trump's this huge presence in the race. He dominates the polling. He dominates the conversation. It's so unusual historically to have someone like Trump running. Think about this. I mean, he's a former incumbent president who retains enormous popularity in, in the party in 19, can you imagine Jimmy Carter in 1984 running? It's impossible. Yeah. You know, he had lost in 80 and the party had kind of moved on by 84. They went to Walter Mondale as former vice president, but like Jimmy Carter wasn't going to run in 1984. Can you imagine George HW Bush in 1996 running for president? No. I mean, it would have been possible, 
but he had lost in 92 to Clinton and he wasn't going to come back. It was Bob Dole's turn. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, with these one term examples, it's just you don't have this kind of thing happen where so a president loses and comes back. But so much of it, of course, goes back to how he falsely claimed he won in 2020. And that false claim settled into the Republican electorate in many quarters, giving him this foundation that he really deserved another shot. And so all of these dynamics are playing out and confronting the Republican rivals of Trump, making it very hard. I wanted to also talk about your uh, the piece you just wrote in the Washington Post as well uh, regarding Virginia's governor, uh, Glenn Youngkin. And I want to read some quotes from some of Trump's former uh, team. Uh, uh, William Barr, uh, Trump's former attorney general, said, I'm for whoever can beat Trump in the primary. And while I still think there are some candidates who can do this, I'd welcome Youngkin uh, putting his oar in. John Bolton, uh, Trump's former uh, head of national or his national security advisor, rather, said that a lot of people put Youngkin in the category of a fresh of kind of a fresh face who could make a difference. How real of an option at this stage and based on your reporting uh, is Glenn Youngkin throwing his hat into the GOP primary? Well, it's, it's October of 2023 as when we're talking. So at this point, it seems very unlikely. However, as I write in the story, Virginia is having off-year elections. Virginia always has off-year elections. It's, it's one of the rare states that doesn't vote in the, the even number of years. It votes in the odd number of years. So, for example, Youngkin was elected in 2021, and the off-year elections for the state government are this year in 2023. On November 7th, 2023, circle it in your calendar, you will have a major moment for Glenn Youngkin. If Glenn Youngkin's Republican allies win the legislature in Virginia, win the state Senate, win the state assembly, and Virginia turns red on November 7th of this year, that in the eyes of many Yunkin allies would be an opening for Yunkin to say, hey, I just won big in Virginia, ran hard on my agenda, Republicans made gains, I'm going to seriously think about getting into the Republican presidential race. Now, Yunkin, if he thinks about it at that point, We'll be very close to many deadlines for ballot access. December is, for many states, the deadline for ballot access for 2024. So we'd have to rush to get on the ballot, but it wouldn't be impossible to get on the ballot in many places. Uh, and I think a lot of it will depend on how does the world see Yunkin's success in Virginia if that happens. It does. Is Trump seen as vulnerable enough that Yunkin could come in and cause a stir. There's no question the money would be there. Billionaires told me on the record that they believe the money would be there to fund Yunkin. The question is for Yunkin, do the voters want it? Is there a real path? He'd want to run and run to win. And for Yunkin, there's not a lot of pressure to do it because his his camp believes, look, even if he doesn't run this time, he can run in 2028. But as I've always said in politics, you never know when the right time is the right time. Chris Christie probably We'll always think about 2011. He was recruited to run for president. He decided not to. He thought it was too soon. But that may have been the best time for him to run, historically speaking, against Romney versus running after the bridge scandal years later. So for Yunkin, it seems like 2028 also looms as an option. But again, you never know. Politics moves in different directions. I want to talk about Trump one more time here uh, before we move into sort of the Democratic independent part of the upcoming election. Um, with the indictments and the trials that are happening right now, do you think there's any chance, based on your reporting and your experience with, with you know, former President Trump, do you think there's any potential that Trump could take a plea agreement that would disqualify him from running again in 2024? And if so, what do you think that that would look like? 
Look, there are always plea agreements that could include that kind of stipulation. Trump doesn't strike me having covered him legally uh, for a long time as someone who would take a plea agreement. He's a feel, appeal, 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 fight, fight, fight. Um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's out of, it would be out of Trump's character to accept a plea agreement where he couldn't run for federal office. Now, I want to talk about um, Robert, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Dr. Cornell West, two candidates that have kind of sprung up. Uh, I know RFK Jr. was initially running as a Democrat, and now he's transitioned to uh, an independent run. And I know that Dr. Cornell West is no longer with uh, the Green Party and is currently running as an independent. I wanted to get your opinion and your analysis on both of those candidacies. And then also, as a side note, with RFK Jr., I know initially there was talk about him potentially being the quote-unquote big spoiler for the Joe Biden campaign. But now that he's running as, a, as an independent, it seems that he could uh, take more of the disaffected Trump voters who uh, are, are appealed by, to by some of his campaign promises and some of the things that he's running on. Um, who do you think the potential of RFK Jr.'s candidacy to affect is – who do you think that that affects more, Trump or Biden? It's a great question, Adam. I mean, RFK Jr. presented a real problem for President Biden, not in terms of losing the nomination, but just in being a distraction politically if he had done well in New Hampshire. Um, So when you think about RFK Jr. now running as an independent, moving from the Democratic race to the independent side, he presents a more complicated question because his anti-vaccine agenda, his views uh, that are, you know, very questioning of vaccine policy at the federal level appealed to many Republicans, and they appealed not just to Democrats. Uh, so he could take from the kind of anti-vax crowd that supports Trump, and they may be tempted by the the call of RFK Jr.'s message to move to an independent candidate. But at the same time, Cornell West is someone who comes from the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. I remember covering many Bernie Sanders events over the years, and Dr. Cornell West would be there, and he would call Cor- Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator and former presidential candidate, Brother Bernie. And there was a sense that Cornell West and Bernie Sanders were in lockstep questioning the traditional establishment of the Democratic Party. And so I think you have in RFK Jr. someone who could take from some Democrats who like the the aura of the Kennedy name, the Kennedy family, could pull from some Republicans who like his message on vaccines. And you have Cornell West out there as another independent candidate who could definitely pull some of the Bernie voters, even if it's incremental, it could be significant in some states. Uh, so at this point, it, it doesn't look great for either of the front runners to have these candidates out there. Um, and look, we're, we're in a, or an age of kind of the outsider. I mean, so many of these last few elections have been about the outsider. I mean, Obama arguably ran as the outsider. And then in 2016, Trump, obviously the ultimate kind of outsider, uh, not in terms of his financial wealth, but just in terms of his politics, and then in 2020, Biden wins, but, you know, you had kind of Pete Buttigieg as an outsider, get some traction, this guy from the Midwest, Trump, of course, again. And now, and Bernie Sanders is such a, an example of how the outsider the outsider appeal exists not only on the right with Trump, but on the left. Uh, and that hasn't faded. And I think the rise of infl- the, the pain people feel with inflation uh, continues to be a burden for Democrats who are more kind of working class outsider Democrats who feel frustrated by the system and they may be tempted to say, hey, it's not, I like President Biden or I respect President Biden, but I want someone who's going to be a bit more disruptive 
to the system that is causing me economic pain or, or whatever it is, uh, and move maybe to West or at least stay or stay home. And that hurt. That's something that, for example, hurt Secretary Clinton in 2016. It's not just about Republicans winning over Democratic voters or independents. It's sometimes if the Democrats decide to stay home and that and that's why President Biden's out there talking to union members. I went to see President Biden when he went to Detroit to go to the auto workers uh, picket line. I was there. He wants to make sure he's talking to working people and showing solidarity. Now, I know you just talked about inflation. Um, and again, right before we get into the, the Speaker of the House crisis uh, as our next topic of conversation, uh, you mentioned inflation and you mentioned some of the economic stresses that are happening right now. I know it's still early. It's still October 2023. Uh, but what do you foresee being some of outside of any kind of, you know, uh, continued um, war issues over in Israel or Ukraine? What do you think some of the major issues that voters are going to be uh, talking about? this election cycle? Is it possible to even forecast that uh, this far out? What do you think right now is what's on people's minds? Inflation is number one for so many people. I mean, it's 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 an interesting political uh, equation right now because what's front and center? Foreign policy, Israel, Hamas, Ukraine, Putin, China. I mean, these issues are everyday day in, day out, hour by hour, dominating the national and, and global conversation, as they should. I mean, these are serious, grim issues. But for most people I encounter on the campaign trail, it's the economy that's front and center for them. They care about foreign policy to a point, but it's the economy. And for some, you know, they want to blame rising immigration levels and those and who for, for affecting the labor force and those type of voters seem to definitely be Republican and move in that direction. Others want to blame the corporations for ripping them off and charging higher prices. And those want to, those often tend to move toward the Democratic Party. Um, in 1992, George H.W. Bush was running for reelection, and so many Democrats decided not to run against Bush in 91. There's the famous example of Mario Cuomo, the New York governor at the time. They called him Hamlet on the Hudson because he couldn't make a decision. He was indecisive. He was thinking about running, but he decided ultimately not to run for president in 1992. So many Democrats decided not to run in 92 because George H.W. Bush was seen as very strong on foreign policy due to the Gulf War. But ultimately, it was the economy and voters' view of it that helped Bill Clinton win election. So as much as presidents may focus on the world stage, it's the domestic stage that often comes to define them politically. Now, President Biden has devoted a lot of attention to domestic politics. Think about when he came in, $1.7 or $9 trillion rescue plan. You had a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. You had enormous social spending that got through Congress. So he's put a lot of effort into the domestic front, working to try to corral Senator Joe Manchin and others. But at the same time, his foreign policy in the last year has really become defined by foreign policy. And uh, there could be a cost, though, if, if Bidenomics and his economic agenda are, are, are cast in a very negative light by Republicans. And so the White House, I know, is always cautious and watching their flank, but it's, it's never an easy dance. 
Speaking of, a, of an uneasy dance, uh, the last topic we want to touch on today is uh, what's happening right now in the House of Representatives. We're still currently without a Speaker of the House, uh, with Kevin McCarthy being uh, removed from that position. Uh, two of the frontrunners, which I personally thought were going to be one of the, the new Speakers of the House, uh, both Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, are out completely. Uh, so we're still sort of in this uh, state of peril, if you will. Um, what do you attribute uh, Jim Jordan's loss to? Um, some have reported uh, that it was uh, potentially his connections with the far-right contingency uh, of the House members, the House caucus. What do you, in your analysis and your reporting, uh, attribute Jim Jordan's loss to? Well, I'm curious, though, Adam, what do you make of all this, the speaker race, before <laughs> I give you my details on all this? What do you make of it? Because I've been covering it very closely. It's like my nose is pressed to the glass. What about for you? Your nose is not necessarily pressed to the glass. I think it's I think it's chaotic. I think it's um it shows an un, a non united front when it comes to the Speaker of the House. Uh, or actually, I should say, let me rephrase. It shows an, uh, a non-united front when it comes to Republicans, right? Democrats have maintained, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, he's the only candidate we want. We want to move forward. We want to get this money sent to uh, Ukraine and Israel. We want to move this along. Uh, but it really, it's the Republicans that are stalemating this every step of the way. Uh, me personally, just from a, on a personal level, from what, I, what I've read, I think McCarthy was, was wrong for making that uh, agreement with Gates and that side of the House. Uh, which set him up, as we saw, to be removed from speaker. Uh, so I think it's I think it's frustrating for a lot of people. Um, some people that I've seen, you know, on Twitter, and some people I talk to in my personal life, it's very frustrating because we're also up against a potential government shutdown. So I think uh, in this instance, uh, I think Steve Scalise for me would have been the more moderate approach and the more, uh, I guess, the uh, the speaker that would have been someone who could unite the party uh, on, on all aisles, whereas Jim Jordan, because of, uh, of his more controversial uh, uh, spaces, obviously he's also someone that um, is involved in the, in the January 6th investigations. Um, I thought that that was not the right choice to move forward. So I think it's, it's, it's chaotic, uh, and it also shows, I guess, in, in the way that I viewed it, it shows a, that, like I said, the, um, the non-connectivity of these branches of the Republican Party. And I think it just helps Democrats and Biden in the long term when it comes to these primaries and the election season, like look at the look at the chaos that's happening on the Republican side. You know, they can't pick a speaker. They're letting the government shut down. They're they're not sending money to our allies and our uh, in uh, the Middle East and, and, and in Ukraine, you know, uh, and also Trump's uh, everything that he's got going on. So I think that it helps their case long term. Um, but I think it's uh, I think it's I guess chaotic is the right word. I just wonder, does does the rest of the country care? I mean, when you're going around the Philly area, do people talk about the speaker's race or is it just kind of a sideshow? I think it's just kind of a sideshow, to be honest with you. I know even like I can give you my just my personal uh, example at work when I'm sitting in the office, you know, I'll, I'll pull up your obviously I'll, I'll pull up on CBS, uh, your special reports, or I'll have CNN on and I'm just following what's happening as it's going on. And it's more of a, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening as opposed to potential. I mean, even to compare it to something like what happened to Jan during January 6th, initially it was, Hey, this is happening right now, or, you know, let's kind of keep an eye on it. And then as it got sort of closer into the middle of the day, and at the end of the day, everybody was glued to the television. Like, wow, this is a, this is history that we're watching here. So I don't necessarily know that, that the speaker of the house issue is going to be at the forefront until we get too close to a potential government shutdown. 
And I think that's, in my opinion, and what I've kind of seen happen recently, I feel like that to me would be something that would bring people and say, okay, well, they really have to figure this out and, and get a speaker in because now, you know, my potentially my social security could be affected or my job, could, I could be furloughed from my job. You know, I have friends who work in the military sector. They could potentially be furloughed and, and not working. So I think it's, uh, I think in my analysis and, and what I've seen so far, I don't think it's going to be something until it affects them, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think for the, the Republicans, it's, a challenge because so many of these can't candidates who are running for speaker, whoever emerges from this, even if it's someone like Tom Emmer, the majority whip, they just don't have any real national profile. And after all of the chaos of the last few weeks, it, it's going to be very difficult for them to somehow generate national stature. And it's going to be very difficult. Whoever gets the speaker's gavel, if anyone does get it to pass legislation that's necessary to pass, like to fund the government because Republicans will maybe revolt against the speaker again if the government's funded in a way they find inappropriate on the conservative side. And President Biden's already requesting $100 billion in supplemental spending to support the efforts in Ukraine as well as support Israel. And those could be, again, a, a problem that's put around the neck of a new speaker and saying they're doing too much to help the Democrats. So it's a lose-lose job for almost anyone who gets it. You, you become in the line of succession to the presidency right up there, but you're also really facing a, a short-term political life unless you have some kind of political magic you can to change this situation and the way the speakership works in this current House GOP. Now, I know I mentioned I had notes here about the nine candidates that um, potentially are floating their names. You know, I recognize Byron Donalds and I recognize Jack Berman, but a lot of them, like you said, I, they don't have that national appeal. They don't have a national stamp yet. Do you think it's more likely that one of these candidates will be likely or that the body itself will just vote and say, we're going to give uh, Patrick, Patrick McHenry, who is the speaker pro temper of the House, more authority to pass bills to keep the government funding and get the funding out to the, you know, our allies overseas that need it right now? Do you think that that's a more likely scenario that McHenry gets that approval to do so? It's possible. But at this point, with nine candidates, as we're speaking now, trying to get the speaker's gavel, Someone, I think, will eventually emerge this week. Republicans don't want to cut a deal with Democrats. Anything for them is better than cutting a deal with the Democrats. So I expect a speaker to emerge. It's just going to likely be a weakened speaker. One thing I want to mention with our Bucks County roots, I wanted to talk about um, Representative Bi uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, um, who's currently now in the first district since it's been uh, uh, redrawn. Um, you know, the first district, if you're not if you're not familiar with it uh, as you're listening, it's one of, it's a massive swing district in the state of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, and Fitzpatrick voted to uh, uh, for Jim Jordan uh, for Speaker of the House on the first round. Some of the feedback uh, that I heard from just people in our hometown, they were upset that Fitz, Fitzpatrick voted for someone like Jim Jordan to become Speaker of the House uh, because they view him as a very bipartisan, almost independent type of person. Um, do you think that that will hurt him based upon, you know, obviously our, our history in Bucks County? Um, do you think that that will hurt him coming up in this election? Or do you think it's going to be another scenario like we just talked about where, you know, OK, he made that decision to keep the government going? I think for Brian Fitzpatrick, it's it's going to be a wash in this sense. His vote for Jim Jordan early on in the speaker's race, he will be able to say he was just trying to get government functioning. But Democrats are appalled by it because of Jordan's political positions, his his work in and around January 6th. And so I think it's going to energize Democrats in Pennsylvania's first district in a new way to be able to try to say Fitzpatrick's not as much of a problem solver or centrist as he likes to cast himself. 
At the same time, though, I think most voters are not going to make a decision on Brian Fitzpatrick based on how he voted on a speaker candidate who ultimately did not even win the speakership. It's going to be a fact that will be real to many people, especially left of center, and they'll use it as a cudgel to say Brian Fitzpatrick shouldn't get reelected. But I think for the swing, independent, centrist-type voter, they'll look at the full scope of Brian Fitzpatrick's record um, versus just one speaker vote. Now, I want to talk about just something real quick uh, as far as something, uh, a passion that we share, uh, a love for the music of John Mayer, which we talked about before. Uh, but I saw your photographs from the Madison Square Garden show that you were at, uh, and I was also at the uh, show at Wells Fargo Center as well uh, the past week. Um, did you enjoy the show up there in Madison Square Garden? And do you have any other shows that are on your agenda right now? Yeah, I think this John Mayer tour is is pretty cool. He's he's going. When I first started seeing John Mayer, Back in 2001, 2002 in Philadelphia, over two decades ago. Wow, time flies. Uh, <laughs> that's when you and I were working at the Bucks County Courier Times. It's the, the reality section together. Yes. I think it's interesting that Mayer kind of rose to prominence as an acoustic singer-songwriter, then transitioned into being a blues guitarist, then ultimately became a member of Dead & Company. And now, he, 20 years on, he's kind of coming full circle with this tour to play some of his songs that are more acoustic-based, just solo. And I think it's a testament to John Mayer's talent that he can carry an arena show by himself. Mm-hmm. And that's that's no small feat. I, it's interesting, though, for some of the younger John Mayer fans I encountered at the shows is that they didn't love the show because they expected like a full band and some of his you know more recent songs to be jammed out. Uh, and I think there was a John Mayer solo for people who just started listening to him maybe in the past five to ten years doesn't carry the same weight when they hear some of those earlier songs. But for me, as someone who enjoys the whole catalog of Mayer, it's really, I think, the best way to see Mayer because you can really hear the lyrics. And uh, I get an appreciation for some of the, some of the, some different songs I haven't always thought about that much or I haven't listened to Mayer intently over the years. Like there's a song called In the Blood. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed live. There's a song called Walt Grace. Uh, summer, his submarine test, nineteen sixty-seven, which is a great kind of story song, and so I've I, I've got, gained some appreciation. Um, if you have, if you're not able to check out the tour, there's a album by Mayer, a live album called like Where the Light Is, that has a lot of these songs played in an acoustic format, like Free Fallen and In Your Atmosphere. That's worth giving a listen if you're interested in that kind of music. I was just going to say, uh, Bob, I really, I really felt like I've seen Mayer at least four times now uh, at this point, which is amazing. I will always drop everything to go to see John when he's in town. But I felt like this show really was the best uh, way to see him. I, I have to agree with that because the way that the it felt so. Uh, unique and it felt so like personal in a lot of ways, you know, because his music has kind of been in, a, in in many ways the soundtrack to my life. So being able to see this in an acoustic way and hearing some of my favorite songs reimagined in that acoustic way was fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed the cover he does of uh, Beyonce's song "XO," which I thought was amazing on record. And then hearing live was unbelievable. Um, was there any record other than "In the Blood" and um, "Walt Grace" that stood out to you um, from Madison Square Garden? I think just his, I like his song In Your Atmosphere, mm-hmm. which is has this great kind of way of thinking about relationships and wistfulness. I really enjoy that song. He plays that most of this tour. Um, and I, I saw uh, Steve Miller come out on stage at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. Um, 
and that was really fun to see Mayer play with him. All right, Bob. Well, uh, I have to ask because you knew it was going to come up. Uh, Killer Mike, how is he? And uh, how cool is it to share that friendship with him? Uh, and I love, obviously, I love the CBS News report that you did on him as well. So I just wanted to quickly and briefly talk about Killer Mike, if you had time. Sure. I mean, Killer Mike has been someone, uh, what a journey it's been getting to know him. I was on Bill Maher with him years ago on HBO, sat next to him. And I always remember my exchange with him backstage. I said, well, it's good to meet you, Killer Mike. He said, you can call me Michael. And I said, all right, all right, Michael Render. So we got to know Michael. And I thought he would be he's a fascinating guy because he's not just a musician, an artist. He's also a political activist, a community leader. And so it was really cool to spend time with him. I had an ab- ability to go back and really get to understand Killer Mike in a way many people who love Killer Mike's music, never have a chance to. I went to his childhood home where he was raised and where he sat with his sister and his grandparents and his parents and got to go to the swag shop with him in Atlanta, his barber shop, where he runs stuff, got to see his shoe collection at his home, which was amazing, hanging out in his uh, kind of his garden in his basement. And then to be able to really just kind of see Atlanta through his eyes was powerful. And it's been fun keeping in touch. I mean, I was on his tour bus when he was on on tour. Um, and the most fun for me was recently going to see him at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. and just catching up with him backstage. And he's just in a great place in his life and his career. He's making music he likes to make and he's involved politically and uh, he's kept his independent spirit. Bob, I always appreciate you uh, making time for me, coming by the show, and also your friendship. We've been friends now for, I think, over 20 years, which is crazy to think about. (laughs) As you mentioned, it popped into my head. Uh, We were talking about John there. Uh, But I just wanted to say thank you for stopping by the show. Uh, I have one final question for you, just politically related, uh, and also kind of tie back to uh, peril in and of itself. Uh, With the election, again, right around the corner, um, you know, we are uh, just a little over a year out from, you know, November 2024. Uh, based on everything that you've reported and everything you've seen and everything you've uh, researched with peril, uh, coupled with everything that's been happening recently uh, in and around the Trump campaign, uh, is do you think there's a, a remote possibility that we would see something in 2025 like we did uh, on January 6, 2021 again? Uh, or do you think that Trump has and, and his uh, Trump and company rather have learned the lessons of 2021, uh, you know, with everything that's happening now from a legal perspective? God forbid we ever have violence again about the certification of an election. I, I think this time around, at least the Capitol is not going to be taken by a surprise attack. I mean, what January 6th was stunned people because no one could conceive, no one had the political imagination that it was even possible that there would be an attack on the Capitol. And so I think that element of surprise gave January 6th this dark, dark element that really we hope we'll hopefully never see again in the United States. But I do think we have a problem more fundamental than uh, just the security of the Capitol building. We have a problem with American democracy. If people won't accept the results of an election, win or lose, we're we're facing a a real crisis in democracy. Then the government doesn't have a mandate. It doesn't have the respect to the people if it's seen as illegitimate. And if we have shattered democratic norms, we could continue to face real chaos in this country. And so do I think January 6th as it happened would happen again? Probably not. Let's hope not. But I do think we will have problems with the certification of an election if different people in states just won't accept a result or they can't accept that things are done in a legitimate way. They want to blame the voting machines or blame corrupt this or that. And uh, I think about Richard Nixon in 1960 a lot. He 
he suspected that some of the votes in Illinois and Chicago were not done properly. And he probably had a case to make in, on certain levels, but he accepted the results of the election broadly nationally and the country moved on. That doesn't make Nixon a hero, but it just shows that people were able to accept the imperfections of the election system at times in a way that wasn't a democratic crisis. But we now might be in the age of democratic crisis. I certainly hope that's not the case, and I hope that we don't see anything close to what we saw that day. Uh, But I do, again, I want to just thank you for your time uh, and going over a lot of really complicated information with me uh, in, in just under an hour here. Where can everybody keep up to date with what you're doing uh, on your social media? Uh, tell us about anything that's coming up with uh, CBS News or anything else that's going on in your world. Yeah, just follow my reports on CBS Morning, CBS Evening News, CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, it's been a joy to work on. Costa Reports is my Instagram, my Twitter, my uh, threads, all of the above, or X, Costa Reports. And um, just stay in touch and uh uh, and keep listening to Adam. He's your guide. <laughs> thank you, Bob. I appreciate that cosign. Robert Costa, thank you again for joining me, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and produced by Adam Barnard. Additional production and narration provided by Sam Kreps. The show was mixed and engineered by Carl Pinnell. Our intro and outro music was performed and produced by Dumb Ugly. Additional musical accompaniment provided by Enrichment. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Follow us on Twitter at FND Radio Pod and find our entire archive at foundationradio.net. This has been a Butts Carlton Media Production. Butts Carlton, proprietor.